Today's topic is, yeah, cancel contracts, force majeure, um, and specifically, as we're going we're to try to focus on tuition because that is on many people's minds as the school year is starting. Um, so, but it's obviously going to be in the context of other types of contracts and contractual obligations. Okay, so um, generally speaking, first of all, just to give by way of introduction for those who haven't been in past sessions, the responses that are being written now during COVID-19, uh, many of the halachic responses are simply amazing. Just things, issues that have never been addressed in real time um, for the last uh, Know, probably thousand years are now being addressed. Amazing, amazing, all types of amazing topics. Many of them relevant to Jewish ritual, but in this case, obviously relevant to contractual obligations, to monetary matters, which are also um, just as important, if not more important. So, so just amazing to see how the um, the halachic decisors are coming to bat and coming to the fore and, and able to address many of these new issues that till now we've they might have been studied but more in a theoretical way but now they're actually being applied in real time um, such as the one we're going to discuss now so it's pretty amazing to see that so obviously it's a very sensitive topic this topic of uh, whenever anytime uh, Something's relevant to Jew, the Jewish pocketbook. It's a very sensitive topic, so we have to be uh, um, be careful of that sensitivity uh, when it comes to people's money and how this is discussed. Um, so we're going to focus, as we said, try to f we'll start with tuition, but it involves many other issues, other contractual issues, such as you know any type of rental, a lease, an office space, or or housing. Um, wedding halls, cancellation, catering cancellations, um, shul dues, which is also a very sensitive topic. Um, so all these topics are, are uh, very relevant and applicable to this to the same topic. So, so just as an FYI, I, uh, just to make a disclaimer here, I have skin in both sides of the game on this issue, um, especially when it comes to tuition. I am a parent in uh, local Jewish schools in Houston, um, but I also I'm, I'm a rabbinic board member of a, of a school in Houston and uh, my wife is an administrator and a teacher so I have both, uh, I have to gain on both sides, whichever way we come out in the decision here about tuition um, I have to gain so therefore I think I'm, I'm going to be pretty unbiased in my opinion but I, I am making a disclaimer um, that this is whatever I'm going to say today um, shouldn't be taken as legal advice or halachic advice speak to your local rabbi um, speak to your attorney for sure for uh, legal advice. I'm not a legal scholar under any means. I'm just barely a halakhic scholar um, and surely not in this topic which is monetary topic. <laughs> okay so I was, I did um, some schools, some local schools did call me this morning. They wanted to make a large donation to my organization this morning prior to the class but I said I won't accept it um, due to the sensitivity of the topic. So. So I did not accept a donation and I'm not running for office. Anyway, in either case, so um, let's begin the topic. So the, the topic, as we know, is, is uh, very relevant in today's day and age to, to our great sadness, um, the societal shutdown that happened um, way back when, but now it's, where it's in a certain sense might even be more needed um, when it started in March, but uh, now we're back to more serious times even now. Um, it closed down due to the coronavirus. We closed down all the schools, um, and the government rightly insisted at the time that all schools um, close in in class teaching. 
and many schools transition, as we know, to most schools transition to remote learning for abbreviated hours, and parents taking a greater role in parenting and watching their children, which was new to some parents. It was, uh, they didn't know how to do that, they had to learn the, the ropes. Forget about the teaching their children, just even learn how to, to uh, babysit their children. Um, was it was an issue? I'm going to mute. Try to mute everyone here. If you do have a question, you can raise your hand. Or um, did I just mute? I muted myself. Let me just just can mute. If everyone could just mute themselves, and then if you have a question, you can unmute yourself or raise your hand, and I'll unmute you. Thank you. So, um, so what was I saying? Right. So. Uh, Many parents had to learn how to teach, and there were shorter hours, greater parental roles, um, and many parents were wondering and they, about this question of do they deserve maybe a refund or partial refund, because um, they were expecting to drop their kids off in the morning and never see them again until um, till, uh, late afternoon or evening, and now all of a sudden they were stuck with their kids at home. So this became an issue. Um, so, so I'm going to briefly explore that. And for, before that, I'd like to give a shout out actually to many of the teachers who did, who actually came to the fore and the schools and the administrators who were able to pull it off, which is something amazing in itself. They continue, hopefully, this, the beginning of this school year, they're going to pull it off again, which is to uh, the amazing work that many of them had to use uh, this new technology they never uh, in their life dreamt of using, or Zoom, and, and it's amazing how they pull it off. So I'd like to give a shout out to all the teachers, including my wife, who were able to pull that off. And also many rabbis who had never seen a computer before, some of them in their life. Now they they're, have to become efficient in that. So it's pretty amazing times. Anyway. Okay, so so I'm gonna again briefly explore. I'm, I'm just we're just really gonna address it from the halachic perspective, not from a legal perspective. Um, but since we need to get our CLE, so I am gonna mention um, just I think I have to mention some legal law. So just to to there's a famous term in legal jargon called force majeure, and that's important to understand. Um, just the definition of that in uh, of a force majeure provision. It's going to read here. It says a force majeure event refers to a, an occurrence of an event which is outside the reasonable control of a party, which prevents that party from performing its obligations under a contract. English common law has no general concept of force majeure. Um, no, there's no general concept. The party's ability to claim release for a force majeure event therefore depends upon the, the terms of the contract and the force majeure provisions in particular. Force majeure provisions are expressed terms and will not ordinarily be implied into contracts governed by English law. Um, a party affected by such an event, the force majeure, will typically be relieved from performing the obligation, affected for the duration and to the extent affected, and may be entitled to compensation. Um, as with all matters, and this is important to note, obviously if any school or, or uh, landlord or whatever it is, caterer has a contract which talks about this, so all what we're going to discuss is irrelevant. Everything that we're discussing today is in the situation where there's no explicit um, statement in the contract addressing um, these type of issue, issues such as pandemic or force majeure. So obviously if it's something in the contract, this would all be, everything we're going to discuss today is irrelevant. And what's defined as an event capable of constituting a force majeure? Again, speak to your uh, local attorney. Um, about that and how to define it. Well, again, we're going to try to focus from the halachic perspective, um, and that's what we're going to try to explore today. So, and, and as usual, we probably won't come to a final conclusion 
Um, so nothing today should be taken as final conclusion. Again, speak to your attorney, to your rabbi, your local rabbi. Um, so first, just again, as, we, as we're going to discuss schools, we're going to start off with the school issue. Um, first thing is to understand when that, if someone has kids going to college or other places like that where there's an issue of dormitory issues, and, um, not just tuition fees, but there's fees for the dorm, things like that. That really <coughs> is a different question. That's a question of rentals. Um, and uh, as opposed to, let's say, food issues, lunch issues, or let's say tuition issues, teaching it, being paid for teaching, that's an issue of service, of purchasing goods. So there are two very different issues, although there is overlap, but they are different issues. So we're going to start off addressing specifically, leaving out the dorm issues, uh, addressing issues of payment for education, um, and which includes fees, obviously, for administration, for the buildings, things like that, which are now not being used in the time when um, there are no live classes in the building. Um, okay, so, so obviously... Halacha, uh, as always, as we always discuss, Jewish law is, as is always amazes me. Um, I learn about this that almost everything. There's nothing new in Jewish law. You're not going to find any new case. Um, even with all our new technologies and everything, almost everything was discussed in in there's prior text and there's proof text that um, relate to almost all these questions. Clearly, pandemics are nothing new. They might be new to us in the United States and in 2020, but they've been around for thousands of years, and they were a lot, actually a lot more prevalent in days past. So the Talmud extensively addresses many issues of pandemics, and the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, also addresses uh, many of this as we're going to see. So the question becomes, obviously, what happens in general if one has a job in a school, whether it be a teacher, be the janitor, and have to equate the two, but uh, whatever the job is in a school, and now the school is closed, so the question becomes, Again, if there's no contract that specifies what happens in those cases, um, how does that work? So there are two um, Talmudic passages, which I'm going to quote, which seem to serve as the basis for this discussion in all the responsa and all the, in the Shulchan Aruch, etc. So, um, so the first one is a, the Talmud, the Gemara in Baba Metzia, 76b, um, that discusses a case where you have an owner of a field hires a worker for the job that becomes unnecessary. Okay, so you have an owner of a field, he hires a service provider, whoever the, the guy is going to water his field, for example. So he hires someone to water his field. Um, because this guy is going to be carrying in, in those days, I don't know if they had, like, they didn't have faucets like we have and hoses running water. So he had to actually literally bring up the water from the well and then he would um, bring it into the field and then water the field. So he hires uh, people to do that, and then, um, let's say it starts raining, before the workers um, start their task, Talmud says it's, there's a massive uh, storm, a rainfall, or a river overflows, and used to be the bayou, I don't want to traumatize anyone, so the bayou overflows, and, uh, and now the job becomes unnecessary, okay, because the, the water, the field was watered, um, by these other factors now, either because of rain or because of the river overflowing. So in that situation, the question is who ends up losing? Does the owner s still have to pay, even though the, at this point the task is no longer necessary? He contracted um, with this service provider to provide the water for his field. Now the task is no longer necessary due to the fact that either there was a storm or the fact that um, the 
the banks of the river overflowed and watered the field. Okay, so who loses? Does is it the owner of the field who still will have to pay, or is it the workers, the the people, the service providers who he hired, who who do not get paid and they lose out because the job is no longer necessary. So the can't the um, his contractual obligations would not have to be paid. So that's the question. So yes. There's no damages. What do you mean by mitigation of damage? But it means the, the, the service is no longer needed, is what was. So do I have to still pay or not? Yeah. Okay, so that's a valid point, but we're not there yet. First, the question is who's who's liable? Is it, it if if the owner of the field still has to fulfill his obligations, his contractual obligations? So then he has to pay them in either case. Question is right. How how much he would have to pay? So that's a good question. Meaning maybe he only and that is mentioned in some of the authorities discuss. He may only have to pay what's called a pile bottle, the amount um, that the person would have would have lost. He would only have to pay the employees. That's a different question. How much would he have to pay the employees? The first question is, does he have to pay anything at all? So whose loss is it? Is it the loss of the owner of the field? And he would have to pay, or is it the loss of the worker? And then they would, who, who doesn't get paid. Okay, so that's that's this Mishnah. Um, let's see if that's what I just quoted correctly. Right, so that's what this Gemara is discussing here, and the Gemara posed this question. Now, the Gemara distinguishes, so in the answer, the Talmud distinguishes between different cases, different types of cases, um, and it says like this: it, it's, it discusses something if the if the thing that happened, the act that happened, was what's called an onus. That me onus literally means uh, literally the word means under duress, but um, what it practically means here for us is that the owner should not have, could not have, or should not have anticipated the loss. So then, um, sorry, should have anticipated the loss. If the, the Talmud says if the owner should have anticipated the loss, then he loses. Okay, that means if he should have known, let's say he knows that this river or overflows every so often. Okay, and he should have anticipated that loss, and he didn't state it in the contract. He didn't include it in his in, as a stipulation in the contract. And he knew about the loss. And the assumption is the workers are not from around here. They don't know the schedule of the river, you know, when they open the dam or whatever the case is. So therefore, they should not have anticipated the loss. They could have not anticipated this um, this act happening. So therefore, the the loss goes to the owner, and the owner would have to pay them. Okay, as opposed to if the workers should have anticipated the loss, they also let's say it was a, uh, you know, it was clear it was on the radio today. We have meteorological reports. Listen to the weather. You should have known it might have rained. So they both could have listened to the to the news and watched the weather report before and figured it out. And figured that out. Okay, obviously in those days they didn't have weather reports. I'm not sure today weather reports are so reliable are reliable enough to change the contractual obligations. But let's assume. Um, there was warnings that this storm was coming in, and they both could have known that, anticipated that prior to uh, to the contract. So then, in that case, um, um, then then uh, the worker would lose 
because he should have anticipated too. So again, basically the Talmud is making a distinction between if the, the owner should have anticipated the loss and only he could have anticipated that loss because he knows the area better than the hired uh, service provider or there's, a, or there's a difference if the, um, the worker should have, could have anticipated the same loss or if neither one could have anticipated it. Okay, so let's the, in the Talmud's case, it's saying in the case of rain, neither one could have known whether it's going to rain in three days or the next day. Again, this is prior to, to weather reports. So he says in that case, the workers lose out. It's, uh, it's the, the Talmud calls it Hefzid al The workers are the one that lose in that case because neither one could have anticipated it and therefore the workers lose out. And we'll explain why that is. Um, so applying that on, this, on the simple reading of this Talmud, um, applying that to COVID-19, um, obviously, uh, no one could have foreseen COVID-19. I don't think uh, anyone, unless you were working in the Wuhan lab, but we won't go there for this class, right? So unless you were, you, you, no one could have foreseen um, this coming back in March, and therefore it was totally unforeseen circumstances. And what the Talmud seems to be saying in that case, where both the employee and the employer um, did not, these were unforeseen circumstances. One second, Steve. Um, in that case. Everyone would agree, not everyone, I mean, it would seem like the Talmud is saying, the, the worker loses out, and therefore they wouldn't be paid. Okay, so in this case, technically, one, if applying it, let's say, to teachers, the school would not have to pay teachers, technically speaking, um, if there's no longer, the school is no longer open, and with it, we're going to get to the tuition issue, but technically, and when it comes to tuition, the parents would be the, uh, I guess the school would be the workers, and the parents would be the employer, so to speak. So technically, according to them, the simple reading of this Gemara, it would seem like, and don't get nervous, for those of us um, who are involved in schools, it would seem like that the, the parent would not have to pay tuition based on this Gemara. Steve, go ahead, let me unmute you. Short questions only. Um, you're not, you have to unmute yourself. Yes, now we can hear you. Go ahead. Yes, we're saying it does, again, if it could have been anticipated. But I don't think anyone, even Trump, believe it or not, could have anticipated what was coming down the line um, with the reports. I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was on a, th you know, page 10 in the, in the newspaper. It was, it was a back page story in January. It wasn't a front page story. I don't think anyone could have anticipated where we're at today, at this point. Okay, CDC, so but that's their problem. So they, maybe their employees, they might have to pay. But I'm saying as far as the world was concerned and, and us individuals and organizations here in Houston, I don't think anyone could have anticipated. So, so that's, what I'm, that's what I believe would apply here. Okay, um, so now, so what we're saying is in the case, in the simple reading here, the, the employee, the worker loses if it could not have been anticipated. Um, so the question is, what's the rationale behind that? What, what's the two opinions I found in the commentaries on this Talmud as to what the rationale is to why the employee is the one that loses as opposed to the employer? So Rashi, famous commentator on the Talmud, there it seems to imply it's a question of uh, you know who who going to blame here? Whose bad luck is it? He says, listen, the employer can say um, the person who hired the, this guy to water his field. You know, listen, it's your problem. It's your bad luck. It rained that day, and therefore I don't have to pay you. Um, at this point, 
Um, it's your problem. You should, you know, it's not my fault it rained. You know, that must be your fault. You had bad luck. You had bad karma that day. You didn't, uh, you didn't, uh, whatever the reason is. So I therefore don't have to pay you. That's how Rashi seems to be employing. It's the, it's the worker who loses out. Um, the Rush, on the other hand, there's another commentator on the Talmud, says something slightly different. He says, um, there's, a, there's a famous com- concept in generally in monetary Jewish law, and tort law within halacha, which is that hamotzi mechaver olav in Hebrew, that's the terms of the Talmud, which means if I want to take out money from you, if I want to remove money from you in a court of law, I have to prove that money belongs to me. If you're holding on to the money, so you have the upper hand, because I want to remove the money from you, I'm assuming it's the same in Western law to some extent, I have to prove that the money belongs to me. So, he's, so what the rush says here, since in this case, where it started, where let's say there was an, this unanticipated rainstorm, okay, that watered the fields, he says, we have no compelling reason that would cause the court to take money away from the owner and give it, give it to the employee in this case, to the to the service provider. We don't know who to blame for this rainstorm, okay, and therefore we can't prove who who the money belongs to. Therefore, we were passive, and we leave the money where it is, which is in the employer's hand, in the owner's hand, in this case, the owner of the field, as opposed to given to the employer, to employee. Okay, so that's known as the as the principle hamotzi mechaver olavarai. If you want to remove monetary in a tort law, you want to remove money funds from someone's hand, you have to prove that that money belongs to you. We won't take it out until there's proof, and in this case, he says, there's no proof, therefore it stays with the owner. Now, obviously, this is very important that these two different rationales of, to explain why the, the employee is the loser here, uh, make a big difference practically. <coughs> Excuse me, because um, um, the difference would be if, let's say, the worker was prepaid. So if you paid the money up front, Okay, to the employee, and now he now you're the the he never fulfilled his service contract because the rain came in, so he never watered the field because there was no need for it. So at this point, the employee already has the money in his hand. It was a prepaid contract. Okay, so now, if according to Rashi, that it's just about bad luck, he still would have to return the money because listen, the the employer, the work, the owner says it's your bad luck that caused this this uh, this rainstorm to come in. It's not my problem, so you have to return me the money because you didn't provide the service. Um, according to the rush, and according to the other rationale that we mentioned, which is the rush, the rush explains the difference is, no, it's just about being passive. We're not going to remove money without proof. So at this point, since the contract was pre- prepaid, so the the, uh, the now the employee has the money in that case, he would say, even according to the Talmud, he would not, the employee would not have to return the money. Because again, the one who's holding the cash, the other one has to prove um, that he wants to remove the money. So again, so as far as it relates to schools, okay, so the, if you prepay tuition, which is every president of a school's dream, right, I don't know if that really, really happens, someone prepays tuition for the year, but assuming that would be the case, and I'm sure there are those who do, who do prepay tuition, so um, I've never met anyone like that, but... Uh, but for those who prepay tuition, I guess in universities you probably have to, they're required. Um, so I don't know those school policies in Houston, but if someone did prepay tuition, so then according to the rush, he might have a right um, that the, that uh, to now, to the school might have a right to keep that money even according to this simple reading of the Talmud. Okay, so this would be applicable not only to tuition, as we're saying, to all other contracts that were prepaid. So let's say you're exterminated, whatever the case may be, um, where there are times, many times we do prepay for the year, 
for uh, for a monthly service. So in that situation, it'll be very hard to get the money back. We're saying according to this uh, this this um, explanation of the rush. So with COVID, clearly in a case when you're dealing with COVID-19, you, there's no no one can prove anything. Um, whose fault? I mean, it's clearly not anyone's fault. Except, by the way, I was thinking about in a case where let's say. Um, this person uh, did not take the proper precautions and that's why he got COVID-19. So let's say you have a teacher who you know wasn't wearing a mask and that's why the teacher can't come in now um, and, and she's saying, well, it's COVID, you have to pay me anyway because we're not having school. No. In a case where, listen, it's your fault, you know, meaning where I can prove you got COVID-19 only because you aren't taking the proper precautions. So in that case, actually, that would be according to the Rosh meaning I'm bringing you proof that it's your fault. You weren't wearing a mask, so that's your problem. I don't have to pay you. Okay, so that's uh, that would maybe be a case where it'd be relevant. Um, so, um, so that's that's reading number one of the Gemara here. Just make sure I'm in the right place. So those are the two rationales, and we're saying there's a practical difference between the two rationales. So ba- based on what we're saying, as we're saying, the employees does not have to pay tuition. Tuition wouldn't have to be paid. Um, which again, don't get nervous because there's a big but, as we're going to say now. So what happens is there's another Mishnah in the Talmud, um, which is a very important source, and I'll read you what this other Mishnah says in the same tractate. It's also it's a Mishnah in Baba Metzia. Tractate Baba Metzia says like this. It says if a man leases a field from his neighbor, so some type of agreement where he's more or less leasing the field and he gets all the produce from the field and he has to pay, um, he has to pay the owner for the for the lease. It says if the but he's paying him for the for the way the field is set up currently, where it's gonna the assumption is it's gonna produce a certain amount of crops. And what happens is there's a locust infestation. Okay, that year um, there's grasshoppers come in. And which there is now, right away, in the Middle East, massive, um, uh, I don't know if you call it a plague, I don't know what the word is. Okay, so massive, in, um, uh, what's it called when they all fly in together? Infant, that was a better word for that. But anyway, massive infestation, grasshoppers come in, and, uh, and uh, they're blown in by the wind, um, and they eat up all the crop. So the question is, does he have to pay for his lease because he he bought he leased the field, assuming with the crop already there, and now it's all gone. So so the so the mission says like this: If it was a, again, it makes a distinction. If it was a widespread epidemic, and the the words in Hebrew are makat midina, which means it's a it's a pandemic, it's an epidemic at least in this country. It's widespread. It's not just this field because many times you can have an infestation in a particular field or a local area. But the Mishnah says, addressing this case, it says depends. If it's a widespread um, infestation, that means the whole country is infested by locusts, it's not limited to this locale, then he can deduct the price from the rental. Um, meaning whatever loss, and this is what, uh, speaking to what Amelia said before, you know, you look at what the damages are, and then you can deduct the damages from the cost of the rental. If it was not a widespread epidemic, meaning it wasn't a total makat medina, it's not in the whole country, it's not, um, in that case, you mean, not deducted from the rental, um, that's the difference the Mishnah seems to be making. So, in other words, what what this Mishnah seems to be saying is, even though normally we say the loss is to the service provider, the loss is to the employee, when it's what's called a Makat Medina, that means it's a widespread epidemic, or in our case, pandemic, so then the rules change. Um, because that isn't, you clearly, 
it's something that clearly was uh, couldn't be, was, it's it's different in that case. Okay, Makas Medina. What it seems to be saying here, if it's a regional disaster, that it's it's a it's a large cross you know spread disaster, then the owner suffers the loss, and the renter may deduct the loss from his rent. But if it's not how it's not sufficiently widespread, it's just in a local area. So then it would go back to the default we said before, which is the renter would suffer the loss and have to pay his full rent. Okay, so basically what this concept of Makas Medina does, the concept of a, when it's a widespread pandemic, um, in, this, in this case it's not a pandemic in the term of an illness, but it would, when it's widespread, this, this, this uh, action that's happening, um, it would be viewed, it changes the loss from the renter, from the employee to the owner, in that case, and we'll discuss why in a, in a few minutes. So, so this is the big exception here. We're saying again, initial the initial reading, the other story in the Talmud seems to imply the 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 employee is always the loser, the worker. Here, um, we're making an exception for what's called Makat Medina, which means that uh, that the whole country, the whole region, is suffering from this. Okay, um, and the the. Uh, the definition, just to be clear, what's the definition of Makat Medina, and this is very relevant to, to today, is, uh, is the Bach, who's one of the commentaries here on the Shulchan Aruch, explains that it's not possible to perform the task that he was hired for. It has to be that whatever pandemic or um, came in, in this case, let's say the grasshoppers, they destroy the crops. There's no way he can obviously um, harvest this field. It's not going to happen. So whatever... Um, regional affliction there is, it has to be to the extent that it's impossible for the service provider, the employee, to perform his task. But if there's, if it's any way possible, um, then this wouldn't be applicable and he wouldn't be off the hook. So for example, and this is very relevant to schooling, is since there is a possible way for a teacher to teach, we're talking about, before we get to tuition, but teachers can teach on Zoom. So even though, yes, I can't perform my task of educating, of doing live classes, but there is a possibility, not only a possibility, it clearly could be done and was done. It's a lot harder, I can tell you from my wife trying to teach on Zoom. Um, it's harder to discipline the kid, right? Obviously you have no control and the kid's, you know, watching, doing on his uh, Game Boy, whatever latest, I don't know, the latest gadgets, I don't want to date myself, um, that they're on during, uh, during the Zoom classes and they're totally not paying attention. They're, you know, having lunch and, you know, whatever they're doing, they're texting each other on the screen, on the Zoom screen to other students. So it's a lot harder, but it's possible to still educate, to perform your task as a teacher um, with Zoom. So once it's possible, so this exception might not be applicable according to the way the Bach is defining the definition of Makat Medina. Again, this that has to be a regionally widespread thing. That's only where it's impossible to perform the task that he was hired for. But if there's a way to perform the task, again, through Zoom, that might be a fulfillment of the contract. And that's very important, as we're going to see. Many contemporary authorities who do discuss the issue of school tuition do use this loophole um, or this, I wouldn't call it a loophole even, this definition, saying that once the school is providing Zoom classes and other methods of education, you no longer can claim that you don't want to pay tuition. Okay? Because there is a way of providing education, of fulfilling the contract through other, other means. So if they're offering that, so that might be uh, uh, automatically game changer in the sense of if Zoom classes are being offered, again, do, of course it's reduced hours, etc., so that might be a discussion, but as far as if they're offering Zoom classes for the same exact amount of hours that the, edu the regular schooling was provided, so then according to the Bach, I, won't, I don't know if this um, ruling of Makat Medina would be applicable, calling it a 
um, this definite according to this definition. Okay. So what's amazing is, as we mentioned before, this is nothing new in history. Um, even the concept of tuition, of not paying tuition in pandemic times, is already discussed in the 13th century. Um, there are, uh, it's one of the beauties of Judaism, unfortunately, um, as we know, um, we didn't always have such good times, and then we have unfortunate history um, as, as Jews. And one of the things that has happened throughout uh, history is you had governments shutting down Jewish schools, not allowing um, schools to teach uh, Torah. Okay, this, as we know, it happened even famous, the Maccabees and Hanukkah, right? The whole concept of the dreidel comes from the fact that the, uh, the Roman, uh, the Greeks did not allow um, the Jews to be studying Torah. That's how the whole, officially the legend comes from. That's how the whole concept of playing dreidel on Hanukkah came about, is because the kids would be sitting and studying Torah in, the, in a cave. When the, when the uh, Greek uh, soldiers would come, would come looking for them, they would take out their spin tops and start playing the game of dreidel. Okay, so whether that legend is true or not, I don't know, um, but it's on Wikipedia. So, so the the bottom line is that uh, so this is nothing new. So there are responsum discussing cases like that. So um, there's a famous responsum written in the 13th century from Mayer of Rittenberg. He's known as the Maram of Rittenberg, where he quotes uh, Mordechai. It was a commentary, an early authority in, in this commentary in the Talmud about Matzia, and he discusses various cases in which a tutor fails to complete the school year. A family in those days didn't have even schooling. family would hire a teacher for their children and the, the teacher failed to complete the school year um, so he discusses what, what, how does that work? Does he have to be paid or not? So he says if the teacher, again he discusses what happens if the kid got sick. It's one scenario but he says if the teacher didn't teach for the rest of the year because the local government forbade um, teaching Torah. So he gave out an edict that you're not allowed to teach Torah. And this, again, this has happened throughout our history in many locales, even uh, not so, uh, even much more recently in the 17, 1800s in Lithuania, um, where there was a lot of uh, discussion about what they allowed and what they didn't allow to be taught in Jewish schools. Um, so the, then, in those situations, he says, if the reason why the tutor couldn't finish out of school year, the teacher couldn't fin finish teaching this child the school year, is because what he calls a government edict of, he refers to that as Makat Medina, that would, he's saying, would apply the same definition of Makat Medina, um, which means, um, which places the loss, as we said, on the owner and not the parent. Okay, and sorry, the owner, who is the parent? When you're dealing with tuition, who's the owner? Um, the owner hires this teacher. So the, the owner would be the parent and the employee would be the teacher. Okay, so he's saying in a case where the government gave out a decree and said um, you cannot teach Torah anymore, so there the, the onus would be, the loss would be uh, for the parent and the parent would still have to pay out the contract to the teacher. Meaning, in hours applying it to today's day and age, in our scenario, the parent would continue to have to pay tuition even if the school is completely closed down according to this response from the Ram Mirudba. So he's saying, irrelevant, since in our case the government shut down the schools, the government required the schools to be shut down, at least till now, and we'll get to what's happening now, but, but let's say in March, when there was basically all schools shut down based on a, I don't know if it's federal government, local government, the county, whatever it is, so once the government is closing down the school, he's saying that fits the definition of a Makkah Medina, it's a regional um, pandemic or whatever you want to call it and therefore um, the onus would be on the owner the owner 
still would have to pay, the loss would be to the owner, and means, in our case, the school would still maybe have to continue paying teachers, so you get it on both ends, and the parent, but the parents would still have to continue paying tuition, even though the school is completely shut down. Again, and that was without Zoom. In the 13th century, believe it or not, they did not have Zoom. Um, and they still, uh, this was his ruling. So even without Zoom, he's saying very clearly, he would continue to have to pay tuition to the teacher. Okay? Um, so again, if, and I'm assuming COVID-19 would be surely considered, Maka Medina is now a, a, a low, regional uh, illness, it's almost across the world. Um, again, now the government's the question would be, in the coming times, in starting school, uh, you know, the coming semester where we're dealing with different issues because some of the federal government is pushing actually the school should be up. The local counties who have this issue, who overrides who, um, um, but if the government say you could be open and now the school makes a decision to be closed, so that might be different. We're talking about a case where the government is not allowing, is forcefully closing the schools. So in that case is where the Marama Rutenberg is discussing. But what about a case where the, like what's happening now, where the government might say you could do some of the classes live in school, you can open the school, but it has to be with certain guidelines you know, social distancing, etc. You can only have six kids in a room, and how does that work? And whatever. So, so whatever the guidelines are, and, and, and seem to be changing daily in our county, um, in our state, so, so how is that going to work? So that might be different, because once it's the school decision to close the school, so then I don't know if you can call it being forced. Now they're making a decision. They don't have to make that decision. Um, again, obviously it's debatable if it's, you can argue it's pikuach nefesh, it's saving lives by making that decision. I'm not a physician, so I can't answer to that. And it's a very, that's a really emotional topic, so I'm not even going to go there. Um, not for me, but for many others. Okay, so so again, applying the, the concept of this response of Rami Rutenberg to COVID-19, um, we would say, that it's considered a Makkah Medina, and, and therefore all, niche, all teachers would continue to be paid, and all parents would continue to have to pay tuition. And again, that's even prior to Zoom. If you had Zoom, if they're teaching on Zoom, surely I think uh, everyone would agree, maybe even even more so. And this is recorded, by the way, in the Shulchan Aruch. Um, the Code of Jewish Law records this halacha, that if something is a Makkah Medina, you have to continue to pay the teacher. So it's literally spoken about and, and decided in the Code of Jewish Law. But as everything in, in Judaism, as we know, it's not so simple. There are always um, going to be two opinions. So even though the Code of Jewish Law does rule this way, um, there's another response um, from someone named Maram Yes. No, so again, so his, the, this was the original response that I'm quoting from Aratin Rebundenberg in the 13th century um, is saying even without any teaching, he's saying as long as the, the gov it's the government that shut them down, so in that case, we call that a regional catastrophe, um, and therefore the, everyone would have to be, even if there's zero teaching going on. Now, by the way, it does, um, there is another aspect here, which the, what some, someone known as the Orach HaShulchan, more contemporary, lived and died maybe in the, I don't know, 1920s um, in Europe. He has, uh, he, cut, he has a major book, it's called known as the Orach HaShulchan, which codified also codification of Jewish law. And he says that this is only applicable, um, and just to address your issue, Amelia, when he says, um, 
um, when the teacher or let's say the school is, is trying to fulfill the responsibilities if they again if they have to have no way out and then of course they're they were saying they they might be entitled to their to be paid anyway they have no other like we're saying there's no there's, there's no way they can perform their tasks but if there's a way they can perform their tasks and they don't do that so let's say this would be your case of zoom where again this, the, the the educational organizations do have a way of educating the children again it might not be the greatest method but it is a method and they're being lazy they're deciding you know we don't want to zoom is too hard on the teachers you know technology and it's, it's just not going to work for us so we're not going to do zoom classes then um, the Yorcha Shalom says then of course they're not off the hook they they don't have to you don't have to pay them if they have a method okay so I don't know if that if I confused you more or answered your question <laughs> okay so so um Again, now the ish, the problem is that there is another responsa um, of someone named Maram Padua, written in the 16th century in Italy, who also addresses the case of a tutor in Venice, whose student actually fled before the, the, um, there was a pandemic in, in the town, literally this was a health issue, and the student left town. They hired this tutor for the year, this teacher, and the student left town. Um, so he discusses in that case, uh, do they have to pay or not? Um, can, can, they, can they force the student to, to still pay? Um, so, so based on this, on his responsum, there are other opinions. Uh, Rama brings this responsum, and the the Sma, someone named Rabbi Shua Falk in the 17th century, who is also a commentary on the Code of Jewish Law, he disagrees with Rama, and he says um, it's a question of should the teacher receive their full salary or not. This um, this Sma seems to imply that it's not so simple. He seems to disagree of whether the teacher should continue to get paid um, so that becomes an issue um, now we have two opinions so what do we do okay so um, now now according to some by the way the SMA um, according to some it's understood that even when you're getting paid the SMA himself he disagrees and he says the teacher shouldn't get anything but he, he at the end he, he, he says that it should be 50-50 they should split the cost 50-50 um, because um, says it's not so clear so he ends off with that conclusion 50 50 um, but again he's so he is trying to make some type of compromise position here but the question becomes who do we rule like um and then again this would apply not just to teachers to tuition it would come it would apply to any employer employee relationship as we're saying whether it's your babysitter you hired a babysitter they're not coming because of COVID 19 you're made um whatever whoever you hired and they're not showing up because of the pandemic so the question would become, it seemed like there would be these two opinions. So again, the most authorities seem to agree with the Ramah that the owner must pay the full wages, and not like the Sma that we're saying, that he only pays half the wages. Um, but, and the question is why? Um, so again, it would depend on all these factors. If there's no other way out, as we just pointed out, the Aruch HaShulchan says, um, if the teacher himself, and that's another, this is an important factor. Let's say the Aruch HaShulchan points out like this. He says, let's say the teacher himself would also flee because of the pandemic so he says he says a fascinating thing here he says um meaning meaning what he's saying is and this again relevant to zoom similar to what we said before but he he puts it in a different way he says that that um if again if it's an external duress which means maca medina something outside beyond their control which is the case of the pandemic covid19 is beyond everyone's control at this point um and therefore the, they were saying um, the owner in this case still would get paid 
okay, would still have to pay, sorry, meaning parents would still have to pay tuition and they would still have to pay the tutor in this case. However, he says, if the teacher flees himself, meaning and he's not fulfilling, he's, again, he's not trying to fulfill his responsibilities, he also leaves town, okay, and he says, or for whatever reasons, the teacher says, I'm not going to come in, you know, even with a mask, I can't come in, or the teacher says, um, I, I can't do Zoom, I, I don't know how to use this, you know, to use this technology. So in that case, says the Aruch of course, um, you're off the hook from paying them. It only has to be from one side, meaning that the owner, for whatever reason, is under duress and can't, uh, can't do it, and they both can't have the same duress. They can't fulfill their job. But once the employee says, I can't do the job because of COVID, um, he himself, meaning, meaning, but he's a, meaning, uh, He's leaving town, or he's going to some. Uh, he's going to some place where there's no COVID. He's leaving town, so then that wouldn't apply. Okay, so by so bottom line, and I don't want to run up run out of time. There's many other issues to discuss, but uh, bottom line line is what we're saying is because they're different opinions, so it's difficult to force anyone to forfeit money that they already hold. Going back to that other rule that we have, whenever there's, there's it's not clear in halacha when it comes to tort law, so that we, we revert back to the principle of which again means um, we can't remove money from someone's hand. Um, so the case, as we mentioned, if someone prepays tuition, um, yeah, it, would be, it would be hard to take it back. Um, he, you know, he could face a school that insists that they're following the view that allows them to keep the money. Again, there's two opinions, so any anyone could say this is my. I'm going with the opinion that says um, we don't have to pay back. We don't have to pay back. And if the same would apply, if the teacher already received their salary, um, it's, they're prepaid for that month or whatever the case is. So they, the teacher can say he follows the view that awards him full pay, and therefore he's not gonna um, he's not gonna give back the money. Okay. So interestingly enough, I found one other response relevant to this would be, which would be. Um, and this is in, in more recent times. There are many responses, unfortunately, as we know, in Israel, written during the wars. And this was a war, uh, this was a response written during Operation Cast Lead, which I believe was 2008, 2009, um, um, in Gaza. And there were schools close to the Gaza border that had to close. The government forced them to close because obviously it's dangerous for to have school when they're, when the when Hamas is shooting missiles into your schoolyard. Right, so it's not a good thing to have school at the time. And uh, this rabbi uh, was asked, his name, was, his name is Ravad Yosef Tolidano. He's a grandson of the famous Ravad Yosef, and he has a book discussing this, where he discusses, uh, he's actually not discussing teaching here, um, but he's discussing a hall that was canceled due to the war. In his conclusion, he also mentions teachers. He discusses the salaries of teachers if school was canceled. Someone needs to mute themselves. Not sure who it is. Um, so, um, so he discusses there uh, that when it comes to the government canceled all all, um, all schools, and uh, in that case also all weddings, whatever was taking place in the south of Israel at the time. So he says, if a teacher knows that he would not have taught during the war to because he was scared. So let's say even if the school would have been open, but he knows he wouldn't have gone in anyway. Even if the government didn't close down the school. Um, just like we just mentioned from the Orach HaShulchan above, he, he says then uh, he cannot ask for a salary in good faith because he says he wouldn't have came in anyway. Irrelevant to the government closing down the school. So in that case he says in good faith he wouldn't be able to ask for a salary. However, he says, if he believes he would have taught the school was in session, then even if he was already paid, 
he can keep his full salary as per the Ramah. If he was not yet paid, then the school can say they follow the opinion of the SMA, the other opinion, that the teacher only receives half of his salary. And then in that case, they would only have to pay him half if he wasn't already paid. This all assumes, again, that there's no overriding custom or local law on the subject, or contractual law. So once you have that in the contract, or there's a local law, then, of course, that would be different. Okay, so he was discussing schools in this response and paying teachers, not parents paying tuition for schools. But we, assume, we could assume that the, it's the same halachic calculation, and if the school would have closed during, closed during the pandemic, regardless of government closure, the parents do not need to pay tuition for that time period, according to the Yerach HaShulchan. Um, but if the school would have remained open, if not for the government closure, so then the, the parents prepaid tuition, they can't ask for a refund, as we're saying. Um, Okay, but if they didn't prepay, so that's what it would all be depending on all these uh, opinions. So, um, so I'm going to summarize. So first of all, I just want to mention there's a very important um, um, uh, letter I'm going to read. This was a response in contemporary times during COVID-19. It was written way back in April or March um, by, by Rav Herschel Schechter, who is the, um, the Rosh Hashiva in YU, in Yeshiva University. And he, he has he's been amazing during these times. He's written, I would say, he's probably up to uh, 75 or, or 100 responses on all issues just relating, halachic issues related to COVID-19. So he was asked about, at that time in March, about tuition and also about hotels at the time, because this is a big Jewish question, of course, uh, people who had made reservations in Pesach programs for hotels, and now they have to cancel, because of COVID, the, the hotels were canceling the program. That's a very, very uh, emotional question, um, and uh, people not having to actually clean for Pesach and cook, that's one of the hardest things. Uh, um, so, so people have been going to hotels for years, cruises, and now all of a sudden they're stuck at home having, they don't know what uh, shank bone is, never heard of it, never gone shopping for Pesach, and now all of a sudden they're stuck at home. So that's, that was a very big emotional issue for many. Um, so I'm going to show you, I'm going to sh actually try to share the screen. Because it is translated into English here. Um, why is it not coming up here? Let me see if I can open it quickly and we'll end with this. So, give me a second here. I'm not so good with this technology. Uh, yes. What? Give me a second, here we go. Okay, so the first part's in Hebrew, then he translates some of it. So I'm going to actually start for the last, the end he discusses tuition, then we'll get back. I'll read you quickly the Pesach part. He says, um, he just says a very important thing, which I think is overriding on everything we discussed. He says, regarding payments made to yeshivas and children's schools, some parents have demanded, can everyone see, see the screen? People seeing it here? Have demanded refunds of tuition money of tuition money. He says, this is certainly an improper approach. The schools and yeshivas already cannot pay the salaries of their rabbis and teachers. He says, if we ask for reimbursement and remove our support, the schools will shut down due to the current and impending financial challenges. Rather, we must do our part to support the schools and yeshivas to the best of our abilities in order to ensure that they will be available to serve our communities when the epidemic comes to an end very soon hopefully. Doing so, we would be considered would be considered staka for all purposes and would certainly represent the attitude that our tradition demands at all times, but especially in times of crisis and danger. So he's saying very clearly that even though maybe halachically we can get off the hook based on what we were saying, paying tuition or paying our teachers or whatever the case is, but 
of course, we need to continue to support our institution. This would apply, obviously, obviously to shul dues as well. Um, so, and then I'm just going to read you what he goes back and um, discusses. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Okay, yeah. So he, I'm going to start from this part. He says about Pesach hotels, and we're not going to have time to discuss it in depth. This is very relevant to wedding halls and all things like that, obviously, where someone, uh, as we know, people prepare, you know, prepare a wedding or, or uh, booked a, a hotel or a caterer for two years ago, and now they're having to cancel. How does that work? So he says like this: the current crisis presents many issues of Jewish. Again, this was written way back in March already. The current crisis presents many issues of Jewish civil law and conflicts between parties as two issues of payments and refunds. There will be many factors for Betin to evaluate. In general, proprietors of Pesach programs are both are paid both for the experience and goods they provide and for their own expenses invested in preparing the program. When the program is canceled due to events outside their control, as in this situation, a Betin will have to assess how much of the money should be refunded and how much is justifiably kept to cover their own losses. And this is what Amelia had mentioned before, uh, meaning how much damage did they actually incur because many times this hotel or for the Pesach program they hired people months before the program they already ordered uh, many of the stuff the matzah by the way um, I just don't want to scare anyone but most Shmur matzah is baked uh, starting Hanukkah time they start baking and you know it's shipped in the one you buy in Costco that's why it's it's like a it's very uh, when you break it, there is no sound. It's not a way. It's not. You have to put it in the oven if you want that crisp feeling because it was already baked back in Hanukkah time. So the hotels are ordering their stuff. Things are happening already starting Hanukkah for these programs. And they laid out money for that. So he said it has to be assessed how much of the money should be refunded. And, um, a betin will also factor in how much financial aid will be provided from the government, from insurers, when calculating the reimbursement among many other considerations. And I want to mention that because people have asked me this. The school's getting PPP funding. Many of these places are getting PPP funding, the shuls. So why should we have to pay? Which is not really relevant because, as we know, PPP funding, um, the government uh, grants and loans are not going to cover all the costs for nonprofits. So just the mere fact that the school is getting that I don't know if he's saying it should be taken into consideration, but I'm not sure that's true at this point. This was before the government gave the loan. Anyone you speak to in a nonprofit will tell you um, the amount they're still paying for their building and mortgage, whatever it may be, um, is way more than the cost that they're going to get reimbursed by the government or by any fund. So he says, even if the letter of the, the law, um, Rav Shechter continues, demands the proprietors do refund large sums of money, the program participants should keep in mind that the Jewish people are identified by mercy and compassion and are commanded to go above and beyond in being sensitive to the needs and struggles of others. Sometimes it is appropriate to demonstrate this mercy by forgiving a debt when it is clear that the debtor is tr truly struggling financially, um, as opposed to going to a betin demanding the full amount that is due to him. One should request of the Betin to make a just pishara, which means okay, not a compromise, but a mediation, where they come to a conclusion, a amicable settlement, that I pay this amount, I'll pay for the losses, but not for the profit, etc. In the usual sense, such as assuming that debt should be split in half. Rather, the just resolution is determined based on each scenario with all its factors. It goes without saying that it's prohibited to go to secular courts to retrieve money from another Jew. You should use a betin specifically. So that's just to show, even without getting into all the legalities, at the end of the day, um, we need to do the right thing and support our Jewish institutions. And surely if it's a private individual contract between two Jews, or even that, um, helping someone else out in time of need, 
um, is important and therefore you should try to come up in between yourselves to some amicable solution and we have one minute left so I'm just going to use that time to hopefully say that this all should not be relevant by the time school starts all this should be over and there shouldn't be any questions um, and uh, and uh, any halachic issues or any issues of pandemic at all any health issues